Growing up in the generation following the Second World War, Andreas Bader, Gudrun Enslin, and Ulrika Meinhof led the West German militant Red Army faction in a series of bombings, kidnappings, and assassinations during the 1970s that led to the death of 35 people. Identifying with various leftist and communist causes, including anti-imperialism, Maoism, and opposition to the Vietnam War, the group sought a break in their society from what they felt was a continuation of their parents' generation of fascist government, now under the control of what they saw as the American-led capitalist war machine. The group and their leaders in particular gained notoriety in the press and significant popularity amongst the youth of Germany, underscoring the generational divide that seemed to be growing in the shadow of Nazi Germany's defeat and subsequent denazification process. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time for Guten Tag. Welcome to the program. I'm Nick. I'm with Hans and Adam today. How are you boys doing? Wunderbar. Hi. Good. 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 Well, I, uh, we're going to talk today about ideology, political violence, and a little bit of Cold War history. We did an episode, just kind of a fun episode, I guess, at least I had fun, uh, on terrorism as a general subject and how it's been approached academically, etc. A couple months ago, I don't remember, but uh, there was one organization that I really wanted to talk about in depth, and that is the... Red Army Faction, or the Bader Meinhof Group. And I actually have a lot to say about this. I'm curious where you guys uh, are coming from on it. It's something I'll say first, I guess, that it's a subject that's interested me for a very long time. And perhaps as this goes on, I'll get into the reasons why. Uh, but I've been long fascinated by of, of all the various expressions of political violence that took place in the Cold War, the, the Red Army faction has always been one of the most interesting to me. And again, there's a number of reasons for that, and I'll, I'll get into that. But curious uh, if you guys want to say anything before we get started. Well, uh, I did a little reading and watched the film. Um... You know, I don't want to be too critical given my cursory understanding of this whole thing. Um, but at least the film, it was a good film. I enjoyed it. And it was 
cast with characters that seem to want to be in a film, frankly. Now, maybe that was an over-dramatization, but my impression was that a lot of these people, with perhaps the exception of uh, the journalist, Meinhof, uh, the other two, uh, Botter and uh, Eslin, um, they just seemed like they wanted uh, wanted to be movie stars. And this was their vehicle for that. I don't think they really gave a damn about the ideology in particular. I did not get that impression at all. Um, so they had the okay. glitz and glamour. I, but... I hate to interrupt you, Adam. Yep. Uh, I just want to, for the audience, uh, the film that Adam's referring to, and I'm, I'm glad you watched Adam. Uh, I recommended it to him before we did this. It's The film's called The Bader Meinhof Complex. It came out over a decade ago. Uh, I saw it when it came out, actually, and I really liked it. I thought it was, I think it's an excellent film, actually, for a number of reasons. And I recently rewatched it also. And where I was when it came out and where I am now, I guess you could say ideologically, is very different. And I think maybe that's something I can talk about later if I get to it or not. But uh, just for the record, that's what the film is. And I do recommend it to everyone. In fact... Uh, if you are inclined, I would watch it before listening to the rest of this episode because I give a really strong recommendation to the movie. And one more point that to what Adam said before, I would I would like him to finish. Uh, he was talking about Gudrun Enslin uh, and how she wanted to be a movie star. I'm there's a I, I have more to say about her, and I, I don't necessarily agree with that assessment. However, uh, as a as a point of fact. She was in a film, actually. So there is some, definitely some truth to that. She she was in a small, like, art house film before the events of the 70s. I think it was, like, 1968. But, uh, yeah, please go on, Adam. Well, yeah, I mean, I could, I could just go on with complaining and criticizing. Um, I guess on the positive side, they, um, they obviously were quite popular, uh, the, the movie and the uh, the researchers that cover these people will typically cite that the younger generation of Germany was um, not a majority in support of them, but a fair number of the minority, I think, were something like 40%. It was 40 one in four something. Germans under the age of 40. Okay. That's pretty, that's pretty high. And I think if we're actually going to talk about implications for this for other fringe groups um i would say given that how popular they were and nonetheless they were still rolled up i think it indicates that you really do need a lot of popular support in order to be successful and they did have a lot but uh, i think there is a critical threshold where you become something becoming of the people which they fashioned themselves as but i don't really think they were uh as opposed to something like the ira which i've always viewed as fairly legitimate um these guys they just seem to enjoy the excitement to be honest that's my frank assessment of it now to to the uh, comparisons uh one comparison i would make off the bat is is to the weather underground in the United States, which enjoyed nowhere near that level of popular support among the left, even. And there's some reasons for that, I think, uh, as, par as far as purpose. 
that I can flesh out. I mean, maybe I should do that now so that I don't forget to. Another point I'd like to make regarding the film is it's essentially based off of the book by uh, Stefan Aust uh, called Bader Meinhof, The Inside Story of the RAF. And he consulted on the film. And having read the book, the film is really very much an adaptation of the book. And I know it pissed off some, uh, I would say, radicals, I guess. It's hard. I generally try to avoid the, let's call them leftists. But uh, I did encounter, I was kind of curious what they thought of it. And I encountered some Maoist blog or whatever that had a review on it. And uh, they took exception to a couple things. Some are predictable. There is another book, if you really want to get in the weeds, on the Red Army faction that is the sort of approved text uh, from a, a radical perspective, a Marxist-Leninist perspective. It's called The Red Army Faction, A Documentary History. Uh, there's a volume one, Projectiles for the People. And uh, there's a volume two. I haven't read the second volume. I haven't read the entirety of the first volume, but I'm I'm actually reading it right now. And it's, it's interesting comparing the... Uh, the treatment that the film did to the sort of the ideological sympathizers. Uh, the main complaint is actually what Adam would be what Adam picked up on, which is it sort of portrayed them. Uh, it didn't demonstrate enough of their ideological commitment and it tended towards portraying them as sort of lifestyle revolutionaries. Um, now I object to this also. I the thing is if you I don't think I think the film can have you come away with that impression. But and maybe you could make the accusation that, that there was some intention to that. But I actually think like the more you understand the more you know about the history of this I think it's actually a very fair treatment. Um and I there's some things that are that are very true about that but Insofar as, especially in the the person of Andreas Bader, uh, he, uh, I think that it's a fair assessment of him that he was sort of just kind of a, it's a, as a personality type that was just drawn to radicalism for its own sake of uh, wanting to get involved in some kind of action, and he had a, he definitely had a lot of moral failings i guess you'd say uh the film definitely portrays him i think in a way that lines up with what people had said about him like the guy did things like when he was younger he um like would tell people he was like terminally ill or something like this <laughs> to get sympathy and he was known for his temper and his flamboyant behavior was like he would uh dress in these you know, really nice jackets and stuff, and then go like start trouble at fancy clubs, that kind of thing. Uh, but the personalities involved, there's a lot of differences to them. Um, as far as its treatment of the other major players, like the really the big three characters, and they're definitely very much the, the most formative, and it's Creation would be Andreas Potter, uh, Ulrike Meinhof, and Gudrun Enslin. 
And Enslin, I could say uh, my personal assessment is I think it had a lot to do with her, her Christianity in particular. Some people may not like to hear that, but there, I actually have a quote from her. Uh, 1963, Christianity does not stop at the church door. And she was the daughter of um, a minister. She uh, had, had several siblings. And the film actually portrays them in one scene after the firebombing of the department store. Uh, talks about his kind of coming to understand his daughter and stuff. And she, a lot of what she did was very much, you could see a, the relationship to her her Christian, very Christian upbringing in terms of she would do these like Maoist Bible study sessions. And uh, I think that it, that goes a good way to explain her at least. Um, and it goes to part of it. Uh, she was a, a real ideologue, though. I, I think maybe the film didn't fully demonstrate this. But she was. As for uh, Ulrike Meinhof, she's kind of the a little bit different case, I guess. Again, she was probably the author. I mean, people's we can assume she was the author of their primary manifesto, which was uh, the urban guerrilla concept. And she came in from the outside, and so far as she worked sort of within the institutional left of the time. I actually have a... Because I know that there's a, there's a certain type of criticism, and we talked a little bit about the Weather Underground. I'd like to read, actually, a... A little, little bit from Christopher Lash's Culture of Narcissism. Are you guys familiar with this book? Actually, I've never read that specific book, but I am familiar with Lash. Um, and I assume it'll be as good as his other book. I mean, he, he wrote... Uh, it's an interesting uh, book. Uh, he wrote Revolt of the Elites, if I'm, uh, if I'm not mistaken. That was Lash. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, what is it? The true and only heaven, I think, is what that one's yeah. called. So this stuck out at me because I just happened to be reading this book uh, around the same time as I was uh, reading some stuff on the Red Army faction. And I am not going to say I would extend this criticism to. Uh, Meinhof in particular, but there is an element of it, um, namely the sort of bourgeois malaise be, or tr attempting to overcome that malaise through uh, sort of a self-actual, a narcissistic form of self-actualization. Uh, this is sort of the criticism that. So this is okay. This is what Lash is writing about Susan Stern who was involved with the Weather Underground, uh, Jewish, obviously. Uh, and she she died, and like she was like died, died in her early 30s. She was a drug addict. Uh, but so he writes about her, he says, uh, Susan Stern gives the impression that she gravitated to the weathermen because association with media stars like Mark Rudd and Bernadine Dorn made her feel that she had finally found her niche in life. Dorn impressed her as a queen, a high priestess 
whose splendor and nobility set her apart from the secondary and third-ranking leadership of SDS. That's uh, Students for a Democratic Society, if you guys don't know. Whatever quality she possessed, I wanted it. I, this is Stern speaking. I wanted to be cherished and respected as Bernadine was. When the trial of the Seattle Seven made Stern a media celebrity in her own right, she found herself, quote, someone at last. Because there were so many people hanging around me, asking me questions, looking to me for answers, or just looking at me, offering to do things for me, to get some of the glow from the limelight. Now, in her prime, she imagined herself and tried to impress others as flashy and vulgar, hard and funny, aggressive and dramatic. Wherever I went, people loved me. Her eminence in the most violent wing of American left enabled her to act out before a large audience the fantasy of destructive rage that underlay her desire for fame. She imagined herself an avenging fury, an Amazon, a Valkyrie, on the wall of her house, she painted an eight-foot-tall nude woman with flowing green blonde hair and a burning American flag coming out of her cunt. In her, quote, acid frenzy, she says, she had painted what I wanted to be somewhere deep in my mind, tall and blonde, nude and armed, consuming or discharging a burning America. Neither drugs nor fantasies of destruction, even when the uh, fantasies are objectified in revolutionary praxis, appease the inner hunger from which they spring. And he goes on, uh, but I wanted to read that last part too. Now, I, I kind of want to preempt something by reading that. Um, I, like, I, I can see this kind of criticism, and I think that there's an element of that, both in the film and in Stephen Aust's writing about uh, Meinhof in particular, because she had a uh, husband and two kids, who she left her husband and eventually left her kids. Enslin, by the way, abandoned her child, too. Uh, so there's there's some things going on to that. She was sort of... And the film sort of starts her out, like, in this lawn party and stuff with her husband. It's, it's all very bourgeois. But I, I tend to want to give credit where it's due and not... I, I resist... The temptation to pathologize dissent in general. I I think that psychological explanations, while they may be valid and explain part of something, you have to keep in mind that these people put their money where their mouth was. I mean, this wasn't like maybe there is an element of uh, theatrics and goofing off. I mean, there absolutely was. And we can get more into that when we talk especially about their time in Jordan, which is very funny, actually. But, uh, you know, Enslin, Meinhof, Botter, they died in prison, you know. They probably killed themselves. Holger Mein starved himself to death. You know, these people weren't fucking around. Whatever ideological confusions and sort of American-imported counterculture distortions were a part of what they did, which I think is a big part of it. I think that they were imitating American left. I mean, they were dropping acid and stuff at one point too, when they were in the early days and traveling around. I think they ended up in Italy. But, I mean, these people meant business. And when you compare them to the Weather Underground, it's pretty stark contrast. I mean, 
Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers are like public pseudo intellectuals today. They're not in prison. <laughs> They're not dead. You know, it's, I think it's pretty different. And another thing I will add also is that the Weather Underground had a lot more Jews in it than the Red Army faction. Well, why do you think that is? Like, why do you think that in the U.S., like, you have basically left-wing activism, especially in the 60s and 70s, is almost strictly limited to uh, the children of, like, military families of um, high-ranking political and banking families and uh, who are a mix of various kinds of white. And then you have a bunch of Jews, whereas in a place like West Germany, you have, you know, more like working class people who uh, maybe not with the best intentions, but are at least attempting to try and come to grips with some kind of post-war identity. Yeah, like what? What is the real difference there? And do you think that it? That's a, do you think it really hammers home the point that the Weather Underground was basically like a theater in the U.S.? It wasn't ever intended to do anything. I mean, what did they ultimately accomplish? They killed like a. a that's security, that's a killed, great. It's a great question. They killed a security guard. Basically, that was like, so. That was all they accomplished. Yeah, my my answer, uh, I, I, I two things to say to that. Right off the bat. So the first thing it tells me, or, or the first premise I'm going to operate from, is that the Red Army faction was for real. I think the Weather Underground was a, basically a government job. Uh, it was a, a put-up job. And they gave carte blanche for the feds to infiltrate and subvert the anti-war movement. I mean, I know that's the standard. Or they the Standard leftist line isn't necessarily the Weather Underground were feds per se, but I'm sure some might have that accusation. Uh, I, Bill Ayers is an extremely suspicious figure. I mean, his father, Thomas Ayers, is basically a power broker, like big-time Chicago machine power broker lawyer. And uh, I, I think that the weather, I think it was a job. It was a put-up job. And I think that the reason the Jews in particular... We're so out in front of the radical wing of the new left in America in the Vietnam years and 60s, et cetera, 70s too, is because unlike German, like what happened in Germany, America hadn't been, I mean, there's a lot, like America had been fully Jewed, I mean, culturally speaking. And they used the chaos of the Vietnam era to push all kinds of culture-distorting degenerate garbage and promote it and make it cool and trendy, etc. Whereas in Germany, it was all institutionalized. And it's not really possible. The reason that I think that people get a lot wrong about the Red Army faction in particular, and this is where I'm going to eventually be building up to, I don't want to I don't want to give it away now, but you, you, there's a book. I haven't read it. It's called Hitler's Children. It's a book about the Red Army faction. Uh, but I just think the title is really provocative and interesting on its face because they, a lot of them were bourgeois in a certain sense. Um, they didn't come from strictly working class families, but they weren't, you know, the sons of power 
brokers, sons and daughters of power brokers like Bill Ayers. Uh, but you can't understand this. Like, you can't understand the 68 generation in G Germany is probably the single most fucked up generation of of white people in the 20th century. I mean, without exception. I mean, what was what was done to Germany and what they grew up under, the kind of mind fuck that they grew up under, taught to hate their parents, you know, all the trauma that they probably suffered as children, and internalized. They're taught to blame their parents for it. Uh, there is a, there is a lot, it was a lot more real in Germany. America wasn't bombed to shit and people weren't tortured, raped, starved to death. Germans were. Americans were, you know, I mean, yeah, sure, like the slave army got sent over and some of them didn't come back. But other than that, that it's not a very, it was nothing compared to what happened in Europe, what happened in Germany in particular. So really different environment. And the, the they try to they come back and they start i mean the it's where the frankfurt school really sinks its teeth in i mean the german new left like they were you can find i mean she's uh, meinhoff's quoting adorno and horkenheimer in uh in the uh urban guerrilla concept as well as mao etc so i would start with the idea it's just like these people are a little ideologically confused um you know, and you can you blame them though? Like, consider like try to put yourself in that. It's impossible for us to do, really. I mean, we can understand it intellectually, but I mean, you can't read about this stuff without it's constant. Like the German radical politics at the time, it's just constant blame of like just the the amount of internalized guilt and just everyone's they're accusing. It's it's everything is argument ad Hitler, like everything. But beneath that, there's something else, I think. Beneath the surface, something very real. And I would say, if we're going to talk about revolutionary violence in general, there's, there's two essential components to understand what you're looking at. And that's the myth, the myth of the violence, the animating myth, and the targets of the violence. And if you look, let's let's start with the second one. Let's look at the targets of the violence of the Red Army faction. Uh, they weren't fucking around. I mean, they like it's pretty impressive who they went after and who they avoided going after. I mean, yeah, some kind of just you know, uh, a librarian got shot, and a couple just kind of hapless cops were shot in the process, but their attitude, by the way, to towards the, the pigs in general, it was, it was, Hey, look, like the cop doesn't have to do the bidding of the state. If they don't shoot us, we won't shoot them. Simple as simple as a simple does. Now you have the bombing, obviously of the U S army, uh, headquarters in Frankfurt. You have the various police station bombings. Uh, the bombing of uh, the federal judge. Uh, you have uh, the various fire bombings of department stores, but that was the small time stuff that sort of started it off. You're attacking military targets, okay? They're attacking military targets. The probably the worst moment in in the it happened in seventy uh, two was the Axel Springer bombing, and the thing about that was. There was a lot of internal dispute about that, by the way, and that the Axel Springer itself was the site of previous con controversy. But 
Uh, they had tried, the film demonstrates this, by the way, they, they had tried to warn people to get out. Uh, they didn't want to, they didn't want to attack workers. It was, I mean, they were serious. They wanted, they wanted to attack the system. They wanted to attack the American occupiers and their collaborators. Uh, it goes on. I mean, they it gets you know. There's a there's a long list as far as actions taken. Uh, they tried to assassinate Alexander Haig. I mean, like that's how you know someone's for real. This isn't. I mean, compare this to Antifa today. I mean, the people who have pretenses of being like left wing radicals. When do they hit system targets? All they do is terrorize the working class. That's it. That's what they do. They ruin, they ruin the businesses and property of working class people and, and beat the shit out of them in the streets. They, they, don't, they don't assassinate judges. They don't hit a m- military installations. <laughs> I mean, this is how you know the, this is how you know what you're looking at is not the same thing. Okay. Well, I think that the, the fundamental difference, and we might be skipping ahead a little bit here, is that um, you know, there's no, there's absolutely no chance that Antifa will ever bring about like the German autumn, where you basically nearly have the collapse of the government, and you nearly have, you know, you know, uh, huge working class riots, and you basically have a loss of faith in the system, and you have concessions given, and deaths in prison, and you know, basically total social chaos. Because um, that's what the Bader Meinhof gang. And really, the you know the the RAF in general led to. Um, you will not have that with Antifa because it's fundamentally a tool. Like there's these these are not real people on the run from anything. I think that like if anything, they're allowed to exist so that feds and um, you know the professional bagmen uh, can kind of sharpen their teeth and and get good at their jobs so they can kind of play pretend. But in you know, with the Bonner Meinhof group, uh, I guess or the RAF, it, what you really have to understand is that they were able to um, not only demonstrate real tactical knowledge and actually pose a threat to sort of the West German commercialist system. Um, they were able to basically invoke the wrath of, uh, I would say, the international establishment as a whole. Which came down pretty hard on West, the West German government throughout this whole saga, and you know, uh, basically forced them to initiate a series of um, of political decisions that would end up sort of uh, emulsifying all of the wrong elements taken from what the RAF was pissed off about into German society. All of the you could call it cultural Marxism, I guess. It's not a great descriptor, but all of those left-wing elements is some kind of concession to that cause. I mean, at the very least, you can say my point is that the Red Army faction was successful at changing something, whether it was for the better or worse. It's hard to, well, I think, make the decision. But Antifa will never accomplish that. They'll, they'll never change anything because they're only used to basically. Um, provide some kind of shock troop for already pre-planned social paradigms, you know, six months before they roll out. I, I, I agree with, uh, 
what yep. you guys are saying. I think Absolutely. these are very good points. I, I just wanted and to bring up, I think Antifa has hit uh, courthouses, I think in Portland or something like that. I vaguely remember this. Whether that's theater is another question. Property. Where's the where's the dead judge? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a whole different ballpark. Okay. You know. I agree. Starting a fire at a courthouse and assassination of a of a federal judge or prosecutor or something. I mean, those, those are those are different leagues. Uh, Hans was saying a few things I wanted to respond to. I he's uh, very right. Uh, to the point about the cultural Marxism, uh, which is really, it's it's very unfortunately misused a lot, I think, by, by dissidents. Um, I won't get, go down that road now, uh, but I would just point out, for the sake of the topic at hand, uh, they were very influential in the German left. I mean, that's where they set up shop. That's where those Jews set up shop. That's why, you know, it's the Frankfurt School. I mean, th these were big influencers on, and they had this whole clique, this literary clique, like people like Heinrich Boll. They they were all gentle. They had the, you know, the thing that's called like Gruppe 47, I believe it was. It was like the literary circle that was like they're, they're like sending the, the Gentiles out to go like put the seed the right forms of, of distorted culture. Uh, they started to get skittish. Those types of people, those Jews, got skittish when, when 1972 Munich Olympics happened and Black September took out the Israeli football team. Uh, do you think that like Theodore Adorno was uh, feeling really comfortable about that? Mm -hmm. In fact, I believe it was, I don't know if it was Habermas. I think it was Habermas who that's where he started they started to throw things around as like a words terms like a, a left left-wing fascists is how they describe them because these people you have to understand about the jews like just public service announcement capitalism communism they don't give a shit it's not about that it's not it's about control and the fact of the matter is west germany was under jewish financial control and military occupation by their gall in the united states they had what they wanted they didn't need socialism they're, and they're perfectly happy with bourgeois capitalist society as long as you know they have a place in it and they typically have the place in it so they're they're not serious about socialism or revolution this is why antifa they're not they're not actual revolutionaries they're not in interested in challenging the system they're not interesting in armed struggle against the system which is what took place in the seventies in Germany. I mean, can you imagine? Imagine what the uh, what's what's going to be the Antifa press statement if I don't know uh, where's the next Olympics, Japan or whatever. You know, let's say something was to happen in the Israeli dorms at the Japanese Olympics. What do you think? What do you think? Uh, the uh, the rad left uh, the the Antifa. What do you think they're going to say about that? What what is the question answers? I mean, whatever that means. But what what is the official Antifa stance and what's going on in Israel and Palestine right now? Anybody know? Oh, they're always kind of. That's another rabbit hole. They they usually they 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 wade like a kind of Chomsky. They'll say like, "Oh, we stand in solidarity with Palestinians and shit like that." Uh, usually, they're very disappointed when like some of these people do go show up and like volunteer for like the. Uh, the Kurd, the supposed like anarchist Kurd militia or whatever, 
And these people are always like disappointed when they find that these people aren't don't have the same bourgeois obsessions as they do. Usually it's the sex stuff, which is the height of bourgeois decadence, by the way, uh, like transsexualism and it's ultimate narcissistic bourgeois decadence, like homosexualism, transsexualism, all this stuff. This is what these people are first and forefront in their minds. And to that point, uh, lest you think I'm just going to give like a, a glowing review of uh, <laughs> Marxist-Leninist terror, I do have, I have some points on that, actually. Speaking of that kind of clash, uh, the film does a great job of it. There's the scene, so they go to Jordan after they... What happens is Ulrika Meinhof uh, busts Andreas Bader and Enslin out of out of prison. Well, they get them to agree to like send them. She's working at this thing. It's like the Institute for Social Research. Some you know bullshit. Like they they get him. They she, they work out a deal. The the film portrays it pretty accurately. What happened? Uh, they, she's going to go interview him, and that's when she got involved. Then, by the way, after the arson incidents uh she was like covering their trial she was a if i'm, I'm basically i'm talking at this point as if you had like seen the film or you know these events because i can't it's it's pretty dense history really i mean 10 years of oh, there's a lot going on in terms of actors and specific events so i'm not I, this is really going to be a cursory summary and i apologize for that i guess but uh, she was an editor of a prominent left-wing newspaper called Crunket. And she was, that's how she got hooked up with them. Anyways, they eventually, they, they go to Jordan to get training. And in the film, uh, it portrays us like right off the bat. They're just, like, Andres Bader in particular is very combative. And they're getting, obviously, training for with the Popular Liberation Front of Palestine. And they immediately insist on on sharing dormitories when they're like, okay, here, the women can sleep over there. The, the men can sleep there. And they, they refuse, you know, so they're already behaving very boorishly. And to make matters worse, uh, they start, they start doing like nude sunbathing on the roof of that dormitory. Okay. I mean, not, not just uh, any dormitory. Uh, this is, state. this is a, I mean, there's three things. One, it's a Muslim country. Two, it is a military camp. And three, this is not just a a war. Yes. This is th this is not some bourgeois war. This is a war for their existence. So this is this is three layers yes. of seriousness that these people are flippantly taking a leak on. And I, I mean, I, t I totally sided with uh, Ahmed, the uh, the camp commander, and, and wanting to get rid of these idiots, but. Uh, you know, I think that was intentional in the film's part, at least. I don't know about the real life actions, but yeah, they were pretty despicable. It's true. Like the film is a very, I mean, okay, true. Again, my source material is uh, Stefan Aust's book, but, and the film, I will just say, is a very faithful, his book's well-researched and the film is a very faithful adaptation of it. And there's little bits that are left out though. Like no shit. One of the girls at one point asks for why there isn't a Coca-Cola machine installed in the camp. You know, it's funny and I have to, I have to share a little bit yeah. of my personal life without getting too detailed, obviously, but I, I've been abroad and, you know, Americans have a well-deserved reputation for being uh, buffoonish and ignorant and arrogant. 
in other countries, expecting others to speak their own language, to serve them, to uh, mold to their expectations, basically, uh, despite the, the, the foreign native difference in culture. However, I've, I've noticed this in German people uh, also, and I've also heard from non-Americans that Germans are even more obnoxious than Americans. Um, and I think some of that has to do with the fact that Germany is a pretty well-run country. And then when they go abroad, they're, they're very proud of themselves and they, they see the stark contrast. And I don't really blame them for that, but they carry themselves in a very haughty manner. Uh, and I've seen this in person. And so that, that could be some of this. The, the Americanized German is a pretty is a pretty ugly beast because you have that the German qualities mixed with the American style consumer gluttony. And those two things. You know, they they, they are an ugly mix. Uh, as for the other portrayal, I, I haven't talked much about Horst Smaller yet because he plays a pretty bit part in the film, but I have a lot to say about him generally. But I'll just add at this point. <laughs> well, he, he went 180 politically. That's that's what's most interesting about him. He's such oh, a that, that Okay, that's, smaller. again. Oh, oh, I'm I'm a huge fan of Horst Smaller. Um, I big bet. disagree. I mean, he's a... Uh, He's very much a Hegelian. Uh, I can say that, but I'll, I kind of want to save that for for later. Uh, Horst Smaller, I have a lot of respect for. Um, I mean, he's probably like the one person who's been an enemy of the the occupation of Germany for the entirety of the Cold War up until the current year. So you gotta give him credit for that, and he's he's paid the price for it big time. Uh, the film in the scene actually per- give, portrays him quite a bit better than uh, his compatriots. Uh, I mean, I could talk about it now, I guess. I mean, I kind of wanted to save talking about Horst for later. Um, as for commentary, further commentary on the what happened in Jordan, it is pretty funny. I mean, it's just... You could attribute it to a lot of different factors, but, you know, obviously they weren't a good fit. <laughs> uh, but be that as it may, they they came back to, to Germany and uh, began uh, their terror campaign, armed struggle. Can I uh, can I make a, an interesting point? I thought about uh, how the RAF operated. Um, so, in West Germany, um, in the early days, there was this common, um, uh, let's say, reinforcement of a, of an idea uh, in which you could uh, you could not necessarily um, live without being reminded of the Nazi past. And um, how this manifested was generally um, in any time the German government attempted to uh, create some sort of West German government attempted to create any sort of a, uh, a centralization or some kind of industrial group or trade group or commerce or anything at the federal level um, or tried to create a, a domestic intelligence group or tried to create a paramilitary organization or 
a security group or anything along those lines. Um, they were immediately criticized as being uh, invoking the Nazi past. Uh, and you can see the, the cynical reasons for this uh, are broadly stemmed actually from the United States and, and really the uh, sort of the internationalists with their fingers in Germany who wanted to ensure that the Germans never actually stood on their own two feet after the war. Um, and so there were a couple attempts at creating uh, a kind of, uh, I don't know, anti-terror group or some kind of like domestic intelligence group um, that was independent somewhat of NATO and independent of the United States and independent of um, the international order. It was things like uh, Federal Criminal Police Office or the BKA, uh, GSG9, some other groups. And all this stuff kind of uh, failed in the long run because every time there was any attempt to collect information on what the public was up to or you know, if there were any suspicious, shall we say, communist elements um, within the country, uh, well, then it was decried as being a part of the Nazi past, and it was disbanded. And it was within this sort of paradigm that the RAF was allowed to even operate. So the irony is that um, I, you know, I agree with Nick that the RAF was not necessarily some some sort of um, fake plot, much like Antifa definitely is. But the irony is that they operated within a system that was only really possible, I think, due to the constant interventions by the international order to prevent the West German government from being able to stand on its own. I think if the West German government um, had been effectively left alone after 1946, um, the Butter-Meinhof gang and w- would have been crushed within six months, and the Red Army faction probably would never have happened. Because I think that the the strength of the central government in Germany would have been realized much faster, and the power of uh, you know German intelligence gathering, uh, which they have actually sort of reconstructed, they inherited a lot of that infrastructure from the East Germans, and they've uh, kind of constructed their own um, you know terror network analysis groups uh, across their government now. Uh, with NATO's help, and that's, of course, how they uh, go after right-wingers um, and uh, the undesirables these days. But I think if they, they had been allowed to operate on their own and not been constantly kind of accused of uh, indulging in Nazi behavior by t- attempting to do anything substantive, um, you know, the, the, the RAF would never have existed. So that's, the I think, the ultimate irony of this all is that they they really were able to be as effective and as adaptive as they were because in many ways the West German government had its hands tied. And it was effectively reduced to a government that was there primarily to act as some kind of buffer state against the Soviet Union. Um, And when it wasn't busy doing that, it was there to extract uh, wealth and and ensure uh, clean trade and of goods and services through the West German factory and banking systems. That was effectively its only purpose. It was never really going to be able, I think in many ways, structurally after 1946, um, to do anything uh, 
very quickly about something like the Red Army faction. This is a really good point. Um, I will say, though, the counterfactual of West German government being left alone just isn't, it's just not a, on the table in any meaningful sense. We have to That's remember, true. Germany would have been com completely deindustrialized had it not been for the the American Empire and NATO needing to use it as a base for their new Cold War. I mean, the the Marshall Plan money that came in was that's part of the deal. And yeah, they retained some elements. I mean, the left is always quick to point out, like there's still like these people around who were participants in the Third Reich. And it's like, well, no sh shit. I mean, that was your parents' generation. Obviously, there were people who were... <laughs> that was, like, you can't get around this. Uh, Horst Mahler's father, for example, was a, was a dedicated Nazi. Uh, Enslin's husband was the son of a blood and soil poet i mean we meinhoff's on episode, father died and then on the on an earlier episode of the show we talked about people like helmut schmidt who was basically uh, a social democrat of some kind and in in the 70s and the man was uh, in, in was, was an ss youth officer and you know like it, it's just that that was just the reality, and I think that it's it's shocking. I don't know why it's so shocking now for people. I think that there are too many generations removed. But you have to remember that literally no one in 1970s Germany, like none of the older generation that ran the country, were somehow clean of their Nazi past. Literally everyone was alive in those days, and they worked with that state they worked in the companies they worked in the banks like what 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 are they supposed to do just like, never do anything for the rest of their lives again and i think that was always part of like the fatal conceit yeah. of of the raf it was you know like anger their that that aspect of what they were mad about was was i think the most pernicious part and i think it's part of why it didn't get as far as it could because they couldn't elicit too much sympathy or help from the older generation that were really running the country. Um, because the older generation didn't, I think by the 1970s was tired of having being guilted over this. And it had been 30 odd years. Uh, they were, that, they, they, were yeah. they were kind of tired of dealing with They it. wanted to move along. They wanted to move along. They had bigger priorities. Yeah. They had, a, an, an irascible, sort of insane neighbor to their east. They had an economy still to rebuild. They had relationships with trying to and build. Isn't with, it interesting that older generation of just people have the state ideology and you have people who just, they're going to go along with it and work in it. That's how people are. Yeah. I mean, the real true believers the dedicated core of national socialism were pretty much all exterminated. I mean, that's, that's what happened. A few slipped through the cracks here or there, but for the most part, pr pretty much everyone was, was killed. That, that was the yeah, program. I mean, you, you had a, you, you killed, had a, killed the real national socialists and everyone else. 
there are individuals who, you know, the kind of interesting anecdotes of history who managed to, oh, well, you have people also who escaped the country too, but nobody who was living in Germany, still living in Germany and escaped being murdered uh, by the so-called allies. Uh, they, they weren't like necessarily real national socialists. They were just people who worked in the regime because that's what people do. Well, I think, um, and I think but isn't too, it interesting like, that the pe those people were consumed by a guilt complex the same way that their children were because they knew what they did, which is really nothing really that unusual. I mean, they just like they lived through a war and they saw probably some horrific things, but they weren't consumed by guilt the way their children were because their children were mind fucked from birth being told that their parents just exterminated millions of people for no reason, just just because, just killed a bunch of people in industrial slaughter. And this is what Horace Mahler talks about. It's like, the, this is the main th problem in Germany, is like, you, you cannot free, I mean, Germany won't be free until it frees itself of the, the Holocaust cult. Well, I, I think... And that's, that's lurks in the background of all these politics. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that I mean, Horst, uh, at one point, he, he brought up, you know, that um, part of what th this animus that drove his generation uh, was when they would attempt to, to talk to their parents about what had happened. You know, their parents would just sort of insist on, you know, you know we don't talk about that. I mean, we just, we don't, uh, we don't talk about that. And the the inability to just speak their mind on what had happened i think in his words uh, is what brought them meaning his generation down that path because instead of their parents and some of the very older folks the few who were still left uh, instead of them just you know taking a stand and saying look this is what life was really like. This is what we were really doing. This is what, this is the reality of it. Um, they were, they were kind of left with nothing to base their worldview on. So there's sort of a, like a deracinated generation of people, you know, like the, the second generation after this cataclysmic war and, you know, in the middle of like a mind control operation, they're they're left with no, no sense of their past or of themselves, so their their heads are filled with nothing but Frankfurt School, NATO propaganda, and sort of post-Marxian left talking points in the German educate in the German public education system. I, I mean, there, and there's like nothing. There's nothing else for them to base their worldview on, and so I think that his his point has was I think he maintained it for a long time was that you know had their parents just like been straight up with them and had taken a stand uh it's also possible again the red army faction might never have happened and, and the support for it might never have materialized because it was mostly some kind of like um strange anger at their parents for not just trying to accept what had happened not necessarily in some kind of guilt but just accept what had happened and then talk about it. It, it was it was motivated almost by by uh, forced. Mahler's talking. You're completely completely right. 
And Molly's talked specifically about that, about how the need to reconcile with your, their fathers. Um, he's the only, he's one of the only men of that generation who was willing to, has the balls and to, and the, to see it and to say it. Uh, so I'll let him speak for himself on what you just said, Hans. Here's Horace Mahler. The 1968 generation destroyed tradition and religion as world-shaping conceptions and brought our people a step nearer to maturity. The ground is now ready for the completing of this enlightenment, which will simultaneously mean their surmounting. It's all very Hegelian. But we, we experience this result of the cultural revolution of 1968 as hell. Since along with tradition and religion, our moral substance has departed. As a culturalist Volk, we live in a second Stone Age. It requires some effort of thought to really extinguish the mental vacuum. This condition of absolute negativity, which threatens to destroy us now as humans and as a Volk. And recognize something as positive, and in this sense, as a historical service of the 1968 generation. Let us be warriors of thought. Let us argue together for God and for our forefathers' country. Uh, <laughs> the thing about Horace Mahler is he's... He, there is a absolute continuity. And I mean, the people who are confused by, they think it's like he did a, Adam said earlier, like he did an about face or something. Uh, that's not exactly correct. He says, um, someone is interviewing him and he had a, he had a good comment on that. Um, he was a little cagey about like, oh, well, where in, was it, which point in your multiple incarcerations were you, like, did you come to have this change? And he says, uh, one changes, and at one time, one remains the same. You have to see it dialectically. And I, I relate to this a lot because, it's like I mentioned earlier, when I first saw that film, and I was first interested in this stuff, uh, I, was, I had a different sort of ideological frame as I do now, but more and more, I see it as really not so different after all. Uh, to put into context... What exactly were they fighting about? What was the what was the myth? What were they opposed to? Uh, they were they were fighting against capitalism, the bourgeois order, American occupation, and they're being forced through that process. You know, participating in uh, this this new bourgeois consumer society, which the Marshall Plan is helping to prop up, uh, as being part and parcel to American imperialism. That's why they were angry about vietnam it's because they were they were being put in this situation these are the same people who as you've been guilting for their entire life these young 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 people uh, about like their culpability and mass slaughter and war uh, in the film by the way i thought this was really interesting uh, there's a scene in the early part of the film where there's like a there's some uh, clashes with the with the pigs uh, there's a shirtless man in the streets and he's uh, this is a the vietnam protest and he's screaming vietnam hiroshima vietnam hiroshima and then he says he says dresden, dresden also yeah yes very interesting uh and that's why they were angry about it uh, because they were being made to be complicit in this and horse Mahler, he says uh I, I don't i don't know the exact phrase in um in German, but it's uh, uh, because it's 
uh, the enemy is the same. Right. I mean, speaking that, on that, that that's fine. That's is, fine. Is, but th- there is obviously some substance to at least him. I mean, I don't know. Are all his biographers wrong in calling him moving from the left to the right? I mean, yeah, sure. There's similarities in that they don't like America. This okay. Is, this, is the but, exact, this is the exact reason. This but, is the exact reason that I avoid the left right bullshit. That's fine. But, look, but, but you're let me, not wrong. Let me, let me look, finish look, my look, point, look, if I may. Alex? Okay. No, I, I I agree with you that it's it's oftentimes a false paradigm. Uh, however, there are substantive differences between those on the left and those on the right, in my opinion. Uh, and it it sh- the definition of that shifts a lot, no question. And I don't think it's um, it's a mark of a hypocrite to shift one's views when presented with new information, I think that's fine. That's, that's actually what a, uh, a, a true s- truth seeker, uh, is, is somebody who's, who's open to being wrong and learning. Uh, so I don't, I don't think it's a mark of a bad person to shift from one point of view to another, uh, f- just to get that, you know, clear. But, uh, w- and I agree with you that there are commonalities amongst the, uh, the left and the right, if you don't like uh, the American empire, for example. However, uh, the most obvious point of difference that I think I think should be pointed out, and again from the film, because I haven't researched this thoroughly as Nick has, but uh, the, the film does mention the, uh, I think it was uh, Ulrika Meinhof was mentioning, and as we've been talking about, uh, her uh shame of the prior generation allowing things like the Holocaust to happen. Now, somebody like uh, Mahler has openly uh, called out the Holocaust as a myth. Now, those are in contradiction with one another. So whether it's left, right, or something else, I don't know. But there was a shift. And so what I'm curious about is what brought him that to that. And maybe for yourself, Nick. I mean, I think you, you've you've said that you've shifted as well. Well, so it's a good question. Um, it's I think that history has proved him sincere in this, and namely that if you ignore left and right, and you consider what what it is to be a radical to begin with, a, a radical is to get to the root of it. And he was just the the enemy, as he says, the enemy is the same. The enemy they fought in the 1970s is the same enemy he is uh, he would fight today, and he was celebrating. I mean, his statement on the uh, 9/11 attacks pretty ballsy. He got he got fined for it too. Uh, I all I can link this by the way in the show notes if you guys want to read it. Uh, it's it's uh, it's spicy, you know. And uh, you know what? I like I, I it's it, keep in mind it was I, I won't I won't bury myself in it too much but uh, you wrote it right right at the when this happened but to your point uh, uh, the, this was the enemy the enemy was if the enemy is American imperialism and its occupation of Germany the thing you're leaving out is the Jews and why. You know, once once you understand that, I mean, this is all divide in, in leftist, in any kind of radical left stuff. It's you re- things get really interesting when you start getting into issues around Zionism. 
and the Jews, generally speaking. But he came to identify that this, that the, the Holocaust cult is a, I mean, how can you really, look? I mean, just be, speak on the level with him, man. It's like, how can you be opposed to international finance capitalism and, you know, whine about the, your precious fake six million Jews? I mean, this is a contradiction. That's the contradiction. I mean, and there's so many, like, there's a really funny, uh, like, when the, the hijacking of the, of the Lusana uh, jet took place, there was a moment where they were trying to separate the Israelis, and they started looking for the tattoos, the, the camp tattoos. And he's like, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a Nazi, I, uh, I'm an idealist. That's not, that's not Mahler, by the way, that's one of the hijackers. It's I, ideology confuses things. And to quote from uh, the uh, urban guerrilla concept, or it's actually really a quote from Mao, but it's, it's we must draw a clear line between ourselves and the enemy. <clears throat> it's always easier to understand things based on the simple reality of, of who the enemy is and who your friends are. I mean, this is a much more clarifying heuristic for politics than professed ideologies of what is left and what is right. You, It's always going to confuse things when you go down that. And I mean, Horace Mahler, I think, has been pretty consistent in many respects in his entire political career. It's been a very long one. Keep in mind, too, that like the falling outs took place well before that as well. Uh, and the falling outs, like the internal conflicts amongst these people uh, was pretty severe, especially by the time that they were all incarcerated. I mean, Meinhof was, was told by Enslin that she was the, the knife in the back of the RAF. And I mean, they, they basically hated each other. Uh, the relationship between Enslin and Botter, though, uh, seems to have been through to the end. Is there any, like, indication on why? But also, the other thing I'll, I'll say about Mahler is, like, extreme Hegelian, and he also had the, like, came, he was, like, came, comes to the conclusion that uh, Marx uh, misinterpreted Hegel. I'll just throw that out there, too. But yeah, what was that, Hans? Is there any indication, uh, or I can't remember why, I guess, uh, they picked certain targets? I mean, I, I know that, like, so some of the primary targets, uh, I guess for those who aren't in the know, uh, included, you know, U.S. military barracks. Uh, they even tried to kill Alexander Haig at one point. Uh, they attempted to kill, I think, the uh, a couple of the... NATO affiliated or West German military affiliate affiliated commanders. Um, they attacked, like I said, barracks, bases. They tried to bring down a American plane, um, but they also attacked some of their own countrymen. And I was curious why they went after people like Schleyer, Ponto, uh, and and Bubak. Like, what was the was there ever any like r rationale for? why they went after these specific people or was there an attempt to just bring down the government and create chaos? 
Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm happy to answer that one. So this is where you start getting into the generations of the Red Army faction, right? Uh, uh, because these were uh, those that you, the three that you had just mentioned were all committed by uh, second generation. Yeah. Now, by that I mean there are people. Uh, it was uh, Monhaupt who was who still who was part of the original crew, and she had gotten out of prison. And there was a a Brook or Brock, I think it's Brook. Uh, he was known by them. He was young when uh, they were first starting up. Uh, but then there was a lot of new people. And and then you also had the occupation of the German embassy in Stockholm, too. And the, those were like people. They didn't know any of these people. And this is a lot of the escalation is taking place around that had to do with the, the trial and the, the incarceration itself. Um, so in the case of uh, Bubak, though, I mean, he was... He was one of the, he was the uh, chief like prosecutor, essentially. So he, he was directly involved in this. He was he was the most probably the most obvious target to be assassinated. So that that's an easy one. Um, as for the other two, so I'm not sh the reasons exactly that Shiler were was picked uh i think it's just like they thought he was important enough and they could also easily justify it because he was a former ss it didn't work um as for uh, ponto he was that's that's an interesting one because he was known too. They had a, a young girl, one of the new girls who was with them. Uh, he was like a family friend of her family. So that was how they picked him because it's like, well, we can go get into his house. And the film, it shows like she freaks the fuck out because they didn't mean to kill him. They was like hoping they could just kidnap him. So he, he just they just let him right into the house. It was like they're in the same social circles, their family. Uh, so that's 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 why he ended up dead. Um, there wasn't really any arbitrary violence, and they really tr did try to minimize casualties to um, non-regime-aligned people. I mean, that there's definite truth to that. I mean, the, the cops actually, throughout all this, the, the cops themselves killed two people who were uh, wrongly suspected of being involved. So there was, and there was violence on both sides as far as, like, system... Uh, some, there was definitely some system violence against non-involved people too. Uh, well, one of the collateral I mean, damage was not especially high. Yeah, it, well, it's if you like, you have to take into consideration their ideological frame. I mean, maybe some listener has a problem with like U.S. servicemen getting blown to shit. Um, I'm not going to comment on that, um, but from their frame, uh, you know. It's fair game, man. It's a military yeah, target. I, I mean, like, look. It's, it's... Speaking of collateral damage, so when you look at the combined history of all of their actions from 1970 to when they disbanded in the late 90s, um, you don't really find any incidents of you know, real collateral damage. I mean... 
you don't even really i think the only collateral damage i think one of the few incidents you can associate with them maybe isn't was with the Lufthansa hijacking where one of the, i think the captain died right um but other than that even when they're sending off car bombs and they're throwing bombs into police stations they they're doing it in ways where I think that they have either very specific targets or they would do it in a certain way where no one was around and they were just trying to send a message. It was the complete opposite of something like, uh, again, I guess comparison to Antifa, um, where it's not like some roving band of, of like you know losers that attack the local florist or or whatever you know it's just like which is totally ridiculous um you know it has a very there's very specific targets and it's very very quick and dirty operations and then they kind of just uh fade into the wind and i think that this was a probably a smart tactical move on their part because the whole functionality of the RAF was built on this premise that one day there will be a recognition of the um, superiority of, of our socialist vision and, uh, and, the, and the working classes of, of Germany and Europe as a whole will create their own socialist states and, um, and, and it'll be because we showed them the light and we we didn't allow them to be hurt in the process of our revolution um so if you compare that to i think the incidents with um with Schleier and maybe with Ponto uh, they're actually kind of outliers because for the most part, I mean, when they, they whacked Bubach, like you can, you can kind of get why, like, like we brought up, he was basically the attorney general, he was going to prosecute them. Um, but Ponzo and Schleier, I mean, Schleier in particular, he's an interesting guy. And the reason I, I asked just to kind of get your take, my, my take on why they went after him is he was um, effectively the boogeyman of the West German left. Um, for like, I don't know, 20 years leading up to his death. Uh, he was basically seen... Oh, yeah, as, he was like the Ur-Boss. Yeah, I don't really, I don't know like a contemporary um, American figure to compare him to. I guess you could, com- like, you could compare, like the way that, that he was treated by the left, you could compare him to like the boogeyman of um, almost like a Koch brother or something. Like he wasn't any he, he was like a genuine guy. He wasn't he actually I think was trying to do what was right for German industry. He wasn't like shilling for immigration and outsourcing and all this sort of nonsense. But he was a union buster and he was a trade confederation buster and he was a he, you know, took a lot of heavy handed measures to get German government financing into certain industries and he, he was his whole mission in life was built around the assumption of we need to rebuild German industry and you have to break some eggs to make an omelet. And so that often meant crushing labor disputes and being this sort of boogeyman for the, the, the college left uh, starting in like the late 50s or early 60s in Germany. 
Uh, and there were a series of strikes in, in industrial labor problems in West Germany in the 60s. And he was like this. It's where he emerged as, the, as this like, um, like a robber baron sort of figure. Um, and the reality is that he was basically just like a, a bureaucrat of the private sector. He wasn't, you know, even like he didn't own some massive company. He ran these two um, industrial conglomerate organizations. Um, and if I can find their names. So he basically ran uh, the, the Confederation of the German Employers Association, Federation of German Industries. It's like running the Chamber of Commerce and like the AFL-CIO or something like that at the same time. Or, or, like, or, or like a labor union, like um, uh, the, the International Electrical Workers Brotherhood or, or whatever, right? Um, and so it, it's just interesting to me. Yeah, and it, keep in mind, it, I want to add to that real quick, that the labor unions in the American post-war American-occupied West Germany were set up very much in the American model. Right. Yeah, they didn't. So that's that's a thing. Like, again, I think that there's a there's an implicit irony here, and that the RAF is effectively operating under all of these ideological assumptions that are only possible due to the American intervention and running of West Germany. Um, so they're you know they're pissed off that like these American style unions are being formed, and some of them are quite corrupt um, as American unions became very corrupt in the post-war era. Um, they're, you know, so that they're, they're angry because these unions are being crushed by this Schleier character. Um, and Schleier, to his credit, I think was in a labor camp or, or a, not a labor camp, but he was basically in a, in a, in a, some kind of war camp after the war, he was basically, you know, yeah, interrogated. He was a, he was a yeah. And I think that he but was... He, in, like he said, I mean, he wasn't a bad guy, man. He was, yeah. Yeah, and he I was... Think, just, I think his just, whole approach... You're, his whole you're approach painting a correct picture. It's, he his, was a hated his, figure by the left. Yeah. His whole approach was And they like thought they could have their cake to, and eat it too and use him to negotiate. And Yeah. Yeah, he, he was trying to... He was, his whole approach, I guess my ultimate point, is that... He, this is a man, so you have this guy who's basically subtly trying to rebuild something akin to the old German um, labor and industrial integration, that, that relationship. He's trying to reform it because he grew up under it and he remembered it personally. And... He is basically becomes a boogeyman for doing so because of the American infusion into the labor movements of post-war Germany and into the general thought processes of the RAF. And he gets assassinated by the RAF because he because they believed he was a boogeyman for trying to bring them back to something that they were. And for, you know, actually taking some kind of subtle stand against, uh, I don't know, um, the American influence over the West German economy. 
And I think that like the the Schleier stuff is I think where they really just went off the rails, and you can tell where that's they they lost a lot of support. And I think that had they remained a a group solely well, or mostly focused on directed anger at NATO occupation and and the American order and all this sort of stuff, they would have been far more successful. And I and I don't think that. The, the consequences for their actions would have been as as severe as they ended up being. I don't doubt they would have let him go if they got their demands. And the reason he was murdered is they, they I mean, at that point, it's like they're, you know, up shit creek and uh, the, the prisoners had all died. They had all died or been killed. Uh, to that point, I didn't want to get too far into that. Uh, Alice makes pretty compelling case that they did commit suicide. Uh, that's probably what happened. Uh, no one really knows for sure. Uh, the argument that they were killed is a little shaky because of the method. Like one of the, uh, what's her name? The the girl who's not was not insulin. Uh, she was stabbed with basically like a kitchen knife and didn't die. Uh, so that would have been a pretty poor assassination if it was the the prison doing it or the you know some other state entity committing the murder. Uh, Meinhof one hundred percent obviously killed herself. She killed herself before. She basically had a mental mental break. So they were kept in solitary confinement for a long time and that is that is a form of torture by the way um, they got this the agitation though on behalf of their comrades outside of prison went a long way towards uh improving their conditions i mean they had a lot of comforts um despite being initially in total isolation and they were eventually allowed to like hang out with each other and they got they got all kinds of comforts so i mean it works <laughs> like it works to a point uh you know no no actually they didn't get any prisoner transfers out of it the german government refused to do that um, but yeah uh it and that is kind of, I mean, that was the downfall of it. Like once they were dead and I mean, it, it was pretty much over after that. There was a few, few more happenings and it, there was even some stuff that took place in the nineties, early, early nineties. Like, uh, they, there was a prison being constructed that they had bombed, uh, but that was basically the last of it. And it's really in many ways, the last gasp of Marxist Leninist political violence like real real deal ideological political violence i mean you really don't see much of that anymore now violence has taken on a whole new dimension and it's it's hard to even tell which of it is political um a lot of slaughter of like just women and children i mean talking the world over it's uh Things have changed. Uh, there was a little bit, despite a lot of the ideological confusion, there was a lot more clarity of purpose in this kind of Cold War episode. I mean, it was easy, easy enough to understand. I mean, if you're willing to understand it. Uh, I know some people just recoil. They, some people are just so anti-communist that they're, they're not really willing to 
to give at the time of day to understand what was going on here. Um, and I think that's a disservice because here's a thought experiment for you. Uh, ask yourself, if you were, if there was an organization in 1970s occupied Germany that was a national socialist organization, how different would that have been as far as which targets they had picked? I think it's a question worth considering and something I thought about. I mean, ignore the, the I, I polemics. That, so you're, you're basically you're asking like if there was, if there was a, a NASDAQ or a NASDAQ group, uh, uh, in 1978, would they do anything different? I think that 60% of their targets would have been the same. And um, yeah. I think that they probably would have elicited uh, initially um, probably more um, intervention from sort of NATO and the American security services. And I think that the, the public in Germany, in West Germany in the late 70s would have just been too paralyzed by ideological confusion to really know what to do about it. I think that the targets would have been saying- And it's very possible- the reaction, the reaction by the public would have been, I, I don't think it, it would have been great and I don't think it would have been highly negative. I think it would have been, um, confusing and i don't and i think it would mostly be because you know much of the older generation would probably be um worried you know what what was going to happen if this started up again and i think a lot of the younger generation would have initially been uh you know deeply opposed to all of it and uh, i think that like i said you know i had the raf strictly focused on maybe attacking the West German legal system and attacking the NATO occupation, the sky was the limit. But when, you know, whacking Ponto and Schleier, and I think when they bombed the police station, these actions, uh, and when they attempted to kill, like, the West German commander and, and some other things, those were where they veered a little bit towards... Um, you know, going too far left and going becoming like, I think that the, the accusations at the time were that they were, you know, working with the Soviet Union. And when you act like that, it's very difficult to avoid those accusations. I think that had they not targeted people like Schleier, uh, they probably would have been much more successful and elicited much more sympathy. Um, and if, if they hadn't even tried to kidnap, and I could easily see, yeah, it, just outside of the the obvious facts of history, I could easily see just continuing the thought experiment. A you know revanchist national socialist group also seeking support and aid from the Stasi, which, by the way, is another element to the story. Uh, I don't think it's honestly that important of an element. Uh, it's it's not like they were a Stasi front, but they got aid. I mean, and they're definitely, you know, got material support. Uh, part of the bank robberies, though, was to finance their own shit. Um, 
but yeah, people fled there. People did uh, flee to the east and got new identities, but they didn't really bend over backwards to help them. But they provided some some support. Uh, but I could easily see a uh, that same thing playing out because the reality was is that the National Socialists or and fascists who were left after 1945, uh, who were militant, were used by NATO in Gladio. As long as it was oriented against the new Cold War enemy, they're they're fine with it. But of course, they would have you know they would have lost their shit had it been directed against them. This is the obvious. This is the point that Yaki makes, and it's I I think he was right. History's borne it out completely because look at what happened to the left that generation. I mean, th these were the radicals who were fighting against bourgeois Americanization, and they lost. That 68 generation of radicals, they're the ones who control the German state now. <laughs> I mean, similar things played out all across Western Europe and in America, too. But here's a place where you had some real shit going down as far as armed struggle, political armed struggle. Uh, they ended up losing out to the... I mean, the... The, the money won, right? The, the comfort and the money won. These people sold out and they got with the system. They didn't, you know, the real, the real radicals, the, they died. They were killed. Killed themselves. They're gone. I mean, and that's, that's the end of the left. To me, these are, this is like, this is like the high watermark in a lot of respects of the Cold War left. I mean, you can look at a few other countries. There's some other interesting stuff, but th this was it. I mean, and nowhere did the, was a whole Cold War conflict I mean, more clear than in like West Berlin. I mean, that was, we don't really have that anymore in terms of ideology. It's just not a thing. I mean, everyone's just an, a neoliberal now. Yeah, the, there is something interesting there's about no that. Real, uh, there's no real great ideological well, there, I mean, there's something that you, you look back on the, on the 70s. Um, it was a terrible decade in terms of, material goods, industrial goods. Um, uh, everything was just sort of falling apart. It looked like the social strata of, uh, of life was, was sort of imploding. Most of the powers of the world all were all looking at various deep levels of issues that um, yeah, were all just felt very intractable, some of which still, I think, plague many of these powers to this day. Uh, and in that, you have an explosion of um, bravery and ideology and people, I think, with identity issues attempting to do something adventurous. You can, you can partially look at, I think, the Bader-Meinhof the experience and the Red Army faction experience and experience of the IRA and the experience of um, the Palestinian groups and some of the other revolutionary groups in the 70s as just a longing for something important. Because I think the 60s and the 70s is when it, it really started to set in how constrained the world really was um, and how captured the world really was and how captured the systems of the world really were. And that there were, very, there were honestly very few paths in life now, and there was not much room anymore for personal belief or grand belief or uh, causes, crusades, whatever. Um, 
movements of peoples, all that sort of thing, it had all kind of become stagnant and trapped. And so I think at a deep internal level, that's what motivates those feelings, especially in young people. And so it was an interesting time. Um, it's very peculiar, I think, that this sprung up in, in, in West Germany. I maintain had they avoided a few key missteps, it, it could have been remembered as, I think, um, a, a grand experience in, um, in Germans attempting to reassert themselves rather than, you know, how it is seen uh, somewhat rightly today, but I think also somewhat uh, in a misplaced way as um, just some sort of rabid 1970s youth communist uh, thing that got out of hand. That's basically how it's viewed. I think Helmut Schmidt gave an interview where he talked about it and he, he just thoughtfully basically remarked like, oh, they were like kids and they just got out of hand. <laughs> it took it a step too far. He, you know, he was very nonchalant about the whole thing. Um, and, and I think felt that there was, I mean, go ahead. You're, you're hitting it. This is where I've tried to tried to bring it. And I think you're, you're picking up what I'm putting down. I mean, I don't think there's a stretch to claim that there was basically a nascent nationalism in the in the Red Army faction. And I think that Horst Mahler is, is proof of that. I mean, obviously, the the hardcore ideological sympathizers are going to denounce him and say he's like a, he's a traitor to the cause and everything. I see it differently. I see it as as a as a very clear continuity in many respects. And it was exactly that. It was a reawakening of of real political self-assertion of German people. I mean, yeah, it expressed it through the itself through the lens of Marxist-Leninism, of the culture distortion that was brought to Germany under the occupation, of the trauma that was inflicted on these 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 Germans when they were young. Um, in 1945, and then the trauma inflicted on them after in the uh, the psychotic guilt complex that was built up by the occupation. And I, if what was done to Germany, in a certain sense, I I see this as the revenge of the Third Reich. In in a in a particular sense, I, I don't mean to oversimplify it, but I, I do in a way see it see it in that respect. And it's deserved. And I made the comment earlier about American servicemen. Um, you know, I, I didn't really want to pile on that, but I, I kind of feel a need to. And I'll just say that, look, I mean, you you put on a uniform. I mean, you're you're part of that machine. You're part of the military occupation. You're part of that same military that committed a holocaust against the German people. You know, I, it's you're, you're fair fucking game. I, don't begrudge don't begrudge them at all what they did there how can you how would you feel this is your country uh so we ended the show uh but we were chatting afterwards and we 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 agreed that we should we should bring in a little bit more debate to the conversation because uh i mean i i defer to nick on topics like this mainly because I think he does more research on it and I, I want to give him the authority to speak to it. Uh, I do, however, um, 
have a different read just, you know, based on my just honest opinion, doesn't mean it's more authoritative, but the, um, assessment of their, of the Bader Meinhof gang's ideology as, I don't know, like sort of neo, neo-fascist, neo-Nazi. I don't know how to really frame it, but I, I don't, see a clear continuity between the third Reich and them. Uh, I do agree that they are, uh, anti imperialist in particular American, but just being anti stuff doesn't mean that you're for something else in particular. There's lots of other directions you can go with that. And I think sharing an enemy Sort of like, you know, if aliens invaded one day and uh, North Korea was was attacked and uh, America was attacked. I mean, it doesn't mean that we agree with each other. It just means that, yeah, we, like we agree that we don't want to be killed by a laser beam. Um, so just having a shared enemy, I don't think is sufficient to say that you have similar ideologies. Uh, and I, I agree that obviously like uh, people like uh, Mueller... <laughs> you know, would, would describe himself as sort of a national socialist. That's fine. Um, but people like, uh, you know, Meinhof or, uh, Enslin or Botter, I, I don't, uh, and Enslin maybe is more ideological and I agree with Nick's distinguishing her from Botter. I think Botter was just a goofball that just wanted to have fun. I, I don't take him seriously at all, but, um, people like, Enslin and, and Meinhof, I I do think of them as leftists. I don't see how they would accept a return of Adolf Hitler or any any regime that he would approve of. Um, so you know, that's all I sort of wanted to uh, put forward as kind of my critique here. Well, that's that's great, Adam, because um, gives me a chance to clarify because I definitely wouldn't claim that they were in any way. Uh, a fascist organization. I mean, this is part of why, again, I avoid the the left right. I think it it muddles more than it clarifies. It's not that I that I am suggesting that they were a that the positive ideological formation was uh, national socialist. Hardly. I mean, that it's it, that's absurd on its face. They were a Marxist Leninist organization through and through. Ideologically, I mean that, that there's no ambiguity needed there. However, uh, my point is when it comes to so the way I approach politics in general is I tend towards uh, enemy distinctions. I just I think they're more useful than any because people can ideologies are very malleable things. Um, as we see with the fact that in the post post war German state, you had plenty of people who were functionaries in the Third Reich, you know. And now it's like, oh, we're doing uh, American Jewish liberalism now. Okay, like that's fine. I'm going to administer this in a very German way, you know. I mean, it's I I don't. Like you have serious diehard ideologues, and there's no doubt that uh, Meinhof and Enslin would be absolutely disgusted by Horstmaller's 
recent you know statements over the past couple two decades or whatever i you know, zeroed out about that either but sometimes history has a way of working in between the cracks so to speak you know it's i don't want people to come away with me trying to make the case that like mm, based raf like uh you know it's just i I think it's worth trying to understand them and look at them for what they were and specifically what they did and who they, who they fought against. You know, I, I stated many times that I think that they were a little bit confused and I gave the reasons especially for their confusion, but no, I'm not, I'm not making the case that this was like a national socialist terror group. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, I hope I didn't come off as, making that case yeah and, and i agree but with the you the myth the, uh, of, oh, go ahead well just uh the the basic political myth that was animating them i don't think was far off from what a german a true german nationalist would want to do i mean this is a divide in the post-war right generally i mean do you collaborate with the americans or not um right I think that that's a death sentence and it's proven to be a death sentence. I think, I mean, I've probably made myself clear throughout doing this program. I think Yaki, Yaki was right about that. I think it's it's been borne out very clearly. Well, I, perhaps the other irony, though, is that all of these people died, too. I mean, their actions of going against the American system brought them a death sentence. I think what you mean really is like in the long term, are your people going to survive if you ally yourself with the, uh, the empire? Um, and I think you're saying that they won't. Uh, and I would probably agree, but on a micro level, obviously if you're not sufficiently large enough to combat the Goliath, despite the story of David, I think you're going to get squished. And I think they got squished. Um, despite having a lot of popularity and that was my earlier point. It's like they, they had maybe a chance to really go further and they obviously went a lot further than a lot of other, um, resistance movements in the industrialized world. But the, um, the fact is they still, they still lost. And so, you know, what, what well, is sufficient? This dynamics playing out again today. I mean, the in the new Cold War that's happening, the former Eastern Bloc countries that are starting to ally with NATO, uh, they're going to get Americanized, you know? It's, it's in the cards. You know, they're going to have fag parades. That's that's the devil's bargain they're making. It's That's how it works. And yeah, no doubt. It is, it is the great Satan. It is the world enemy. And... I, I mean, you can call it simplistic of me, but at the end of the day, I just, my attitude is the American Zionist world empire is the enemy. Doesn't mean, like, if someone fights it, like, good on them. It doesn't mean that I'm, you know, throwing my lot in with them personally, but I admire it and... I can objectively identify the fact that it's in their self-interest to do so if they can pull it off. Has anyone pulled it off? 
No, not yet. No one has. I mean, you know, you have a few little holdouts around the world that are just constantly under siege and uh, their days potentially are numbered. But who knows how long this will go on for? I don't know. I'm not going to predict it, but it it's funny now that they like it's almost like a it's a bugaboo too of the of the rad libs right any anybody who prioritizes opposition to a, american zionist hegemony is seen now as a uh, crypto fascist you know that's that's where this has gone to so you have uh, well that that's the that, that's the new who, uh red scare i mean that that's what people used to call you know communist i mean that's how you deperson somebody today you call them a racist you call them a nazi uh, they they use the same tactic in the cold war in the 50s with i mean maybe i agreed with them back then too but yeah. it was the same I mean, concept it... oh yeah i mean and it's it's a, done by the similar actors too i mean obviously it's the security state that helps to direct this kind of these kind of targeted attacks against regime critics that uh, are inconvenient to them, even if they're coming from uh, from the Marxian left. Uh, but it's not just name calling. It's not just a smear. There's there's something else to it. I mean, it's at the end of the day, it's these. There's a the rad libs that who have compromised with capitalism bourgeois capitalism and as i said earlier i mean there's no greater expression of this than the the sex pervert stuff i mean that's that's peak capitalist decadence you know you get no better example and this is always what they prioritize over uh genuine criticism of imperialism which was supposed to be their thing right that was supposed to be what they're fighting against but they've been totally co-opted and compromised by it. And so people who uh, aren't uh, entirely on board with that, with the, with the, uh, the global sex pervert racket, uh, you know, they're treated with suspicion. And I think, uh, and it's not that they oppose it because they're like, against homosexualism or something they don't even oppose it they just don't they're not bamboozled by it the same way they're they're willing to look a little bit past that well you know we, we often on the uh so-called right cite yuri Bezmenov's famous seminars he gave in the 80s about the oh i don't he was an intelligence asset <laughs> yeah that's true you've never you've never mentioned him that's true but it's that's funny but uh regardless of his affiliation i think his description of subversion as a political weapon i think is accurate and he describes whether you agree with his accusation or not uh, he describes the process of demoralization and uh, destruction of the uh, society through the means of propaganda and supporting uh, subversive groups uh, 
including you know feminine feminism and and uh i was laughing once he said like uh, kid lib like you know women's lib kid lib like uh, kid liberation i guess but they actually were doing some of that stuff back in the 60s and 70s i don't remember though if he mentioned homosexuality if i don't remember if this was something that the soviet union promoted it doesn't seem like it ever did but it would seem to have a similar effect I think that's partly why the CIA promotes it is because it destabilizes the society. Uh, it weakens the uh, traditional order. It, it fucks up the family order. Um, it, it, you know, you can call you know, the dictator an evil oppressor. I mean, they did this in house of cards. They, they were sort of very thinly veiling the attempt to decred- discredit uh, Putin in that show. They, they literally had a, a Russian character who, uh, president who was mean to gay people. And so it was Robin Wright, the righteous, uh, affluent white female liberal, uh, awful woman to go over there and, and complain to him about this. Um, it's the same crap that the, the CIA promotes and NATO, but I'm surprised like the, the Soviets didn't do it. Like I maybe, maybe they were actually more conservative than, uh, than liberal ironically. Uh, it's just something that occurred to me just now. Well, they did in the early years. Uh, right. When it was more Jewish, uh, basically. <laughs> Back in like the yeah. you know, Lenin yeah. days and yeah, stuff. Exactly. That's right. They legalized right. homosexual marriage. They, they allowed for divorces to take place just by like through the mail. Um, every form of, uh, of, of anti-family uh, degeneracy was, was allowed and promoted because their goal was to break down and destroy the fabric of society. You know, and it's like you could do it through capitalism and you could do it through communism. And capitalism has proven to be actually the more effective way of doing it. It's more seductive. Well, yeah, it's more it's if if the goal is to liberate the individual from all bonds of loyalty and relationships to their to their countrymen, to their ancestors you know to everything that matters um it's easier to do that when things are plentiful right it's easier when you give them all these these this abundance of consumer luxuries it's a little easier the more people are are poor (laughs) the more likely they are to depend on sort of traditional relationships you know to to have a, a need for whatever community can be can be eked out you know but to emancipate the individual which is the end purpose of of liberalism and really why it's it's been the the winning ticket for uh, the jewish world system is it's more effective and did like to the did the red army faction militants like recognize this in their attacks on the on bourgeois i mean no but to a certain extent Yes, I mean they saw it as the great the threat to revolutionary potential, to the myth of the of the, of the socialist uh, revolution. Was the bourgeois was the threat, and it's true in a general sense the the bourgeois are the threat to any revolutionary paradigm, be it whatever whatever flavor of radicalism we're talking about, be it theirs or ours. It's it is the the, the it's the enemy. 
It's always been the enemy. They're, they're the people who are tied to the. They're the money, the money class who are who are tied to. Tied to the system, really, the most outside of the the people who own it. They're they're the most likely regime collaborators. Because any any disturbance is gonna they don't want you rocking the boat, man. I mean that's that's what it is. You know, and they've yeah the the sexual stuff. Um, it, that was one thing I I didn't mention as much as I I wanted to in some of my criticisms of them because I again I don't want to make it seem like I'm doing a hagiography on Marxist Leninist terrorists. Uh, they uh, when I was talking about the Jordanian thing, there was a line and it was in the movie because it's in. Aus book, um, sexual revolution and the socialist revolution are the same. It's yeah, he says that. That's Botter's line. It's uh, yeah, it's uh, he he says the anti-imperialist struggle and sexual emancipation go hand in hand. Uh, fucking and shooting are the same thing. Uh, it's you know, I mean, there's a lot you could you. Could, you could go like full E. Michael Jones on all this. There's, there's no doubt the sexual revolution is, is part and parcel of of what I was just talking about. But uh, a lot of it was there's a, definitely an irony where they're they're anti-American, but they're also there was a lot of imitation because these are basically these are children without parents, right? We talked about that earlier because they're they've just been totally turned against their parents' generation. Uh, they looked to the American synthetic counterculture that was being built up, and there was a lot of imitation of that. And that wasn't just in Germany; that was happening over Europe. The the, the well, hippie, yeah. Fashion I mean, they they cite the '68 revolution pretty heavily. Uh, I mean, a lot of people are very skeptical of that whole thing. It's very coincidental that it happened across the entire continent and in America, but mainly in Europe, it seemed to be quite, quite uh, well covered by the media. It was a French thing. It was a German thing. Uh, I suppose it's in the UK. Uh, those are the big nations really, but what's your take on it? I mean, is it just a giant psyop or was it, uh, was this is Marxist Leninist grassroots upswelling of the students or. Yeah. Well, there's a huge element of it was, was definitely a, no, no, there was a, there was a, there was a, a, a key element of, uh, I mean, in t- uh, social engineering and intelligence involvement in the counterculture. We've talked about this a long time ago, uh, and it was a model that was exported. American culture, synthetic culture, was used and weaponized by the CIA um, in the Cold War dialectic, uh, rock and roll music and stuff, as contrasted with. The Soviet system, um, and that, that's kind of the, there's a, there's a lot of contradictions, right, in, in these types of politics, because, you know, they say they're anti-authoritarian, but they're, you know, they admire the DDR and the Soviet Union, which are unquestionably authoritarian states, right? Uh, it is a case of people, I think, wanting to... There, that's that's where you see a lot of the unseriousness set in, because like these people were sleeping around with each other, they were doing drugs, uh, you know, etc. 
And that is not what you want in a militant armed revolutionary cell. I mean, that's just a recipe for disaster. I'm surprised actually at that part of it didn't blow up. I mean, that it, it did to a certain extent. There were, uh, there were clear conflicts and it definitely probably involved some of those kinds of dynamics. Right. Um, one of the, uh, Meinhof's, uh, lover at the time that they traveled to Jordan with, they were going to like execute him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, they told the, uh, they told told the the Arabs that he, he they sus- thought he was a Israeli spy. I, I was glad they saw through that. You know, it, it made me respect the Jordanians a yeah. little bit. <laughs> well, yeah. hey, the Ar- Arabs Arabs man do have a like it's still around to a certain extent. I mean, they have a pretty strong sense of hospitality. Yeah, uh, it's it's real bad juju for an Arab to kill a guest. Uh, that's that still exi- exists today. That's that's a big thing with Arabs. Well, another thing, uh, really in particular, uh, we were chatting about uh, during the intermission was uh, was the role of women in this Bader Meinhof group, and obviously it was, uh, if not a complete matriarchy, uh, a organization where where the hierarchy included women at a very high level. Uh, and speaking of sexual dynamics, again, we on the quote unquote right are fairly critical of women in politics. And this, however, seemed to be one of the more effective examples where it didn't completely fall on its face. Uh, and I, I found that somewhat intriguing, uh, if not just a complete fluke slash anomaly, that's not really worthy of consideration, but, um, I don't particularly care for it as a model. Uh, I think it was basically your classic uh, charismatic sexual appeal of some of the the females used as recruiting tools, uh, whether they were viable organizers of a long-term institution, I'm very skeptical of, but um, it seemed to work somewhat. So I thought, I thought we could maybe include that in the, in this part as well. A discussion of that. Yeah, uh, uh, I, would, I have two things to say actually to that. So, I do wanted to finish a point where I was talking about this this sexual revolution stuff and the counterculture. It's it's a it's an obvious point of irony when you're opposed to American imperialism, but you are allowing yourself to come under the sway of uh, Hollywood America uh, culture export. I mean that's that's like you should you should think about that for a second, guy. Um, but again, like I said, these were these were kids, you know, very much so, and definitely it's been an effective tool of of American imperialism. And they imbibed a little too much of that Frankfurt shit. I mean, they don't. They, when you say something like uh, sexual liberation is in service of the, the you know the anti-imperialist anti-capitalist struggle i mean it's just laughable there's there's probably no better tool of capitalism than sexual liberation and feminism i mean you're basically ex- extending the the principles of the market economy uh, to people's relationships and you're liberating women from you know, liberating, you know, obviously 
big big air quotes there but you're you're sending them to work in service of the boss man i mean it it's but the left these types they have a problem where and they it's so easily exploited by the system broadly speaking where they just they want to have their their cake and eat it too right they want to have fun and party and they want all these things to be rationalized as also part of the political struggle uh so they're happy to eat up at that bullshit when somebody tells them that like this is the way forward you know it's it's an easy sell sex is always an easy sell hardly surprising uh but that yeah that's another glaring irony is the extent to which they were adopting american imperial cultural exports distortion as to the other point about uh women in a in a serious revolutionary project of any kind um i commented in the intermission that there's an element of this that i think may be a german thing uh, i don't want to speculate too far on that what i will just say is that uh women as a part of an illegal political organization uh this is just like a recipe for absolute disaster and I'm surprised, yeah, it didn't blow up more in their case. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, women do, though. Do we need to mention Katie PR McHugh, you know, as an example? Incredibly I mean, successful. Jesus Christ! I mean, to have like to have like some QTs rolling around with MP5s, like that's a good look. I mean, it's, it's a, a great look. look. It's it appeals. It, it, it's good you for know? recruitment, uh, but it's like you know. Having um, having her as your boss, <laughs> and then having other women involved who are just going to basically start gossiping. I mean, there's all these hilarious like uh, forums on Reddit that surprisingly have not been shut down. But there's been a lot of um, very, I think, expository anthropological uh, shows that have been filmed over the years. Uh, one of which is Survivor, which uh, obviously is this Mark Burnett thing that spawned many spinoffs throughout the world, uh, including The Apprentice, by the way. Um, but uh, it, it included Survivor in uh, in Europe. Uh, what was that, Nick? Oh, I said I had a, I had a friend who auditioned for Survivor. Nice. He, he didn't get on, but he, uh, he auditioned. Yeah, so... What people have observed is when they they do the classic uh, male versus female teams and they put the females on one island and they put the males on a separate island. The males, they kind of start uh, start fighting at first and, you know, typical like, okay, let's get the hierarchy figured out. And then there's basically a leader that's established. And then the rest of the guys, they kind of just fall in line and they start working together and they figure out, all right, we need to, uh, we need to figure out our water, uh, food, obviously, uh, somebody go for work on the shelter, somebody figure out how to start a fire. Okay. And then they, they get to, to business and they, they start doing very well. The women at the beginning, they actually, they, they get along. They're, they're sort of like, okay, let's all sit down and discuss what we're going to do. Uh, however, uh, very, very quickly that starts devolving into gossip, uh, back, backstabbing, uh, bickering the very glaringly obvious fact that they're not doing anything. They're just talking 
And then basically they end up falling apart and starving and until the producers decide to uh, airdrop some, uh, some food that they, there's like one episode where, um, there was like cans of food that like washed ashore, like randomly, like this just so happened, you know, accidentally by the currents of the ocean. Not that, uh, some guy in a boat just dumped a cooler full of, uh, goods over to uh, the women. Uh, so they basically fall apart without men. However, what's also interesting is that when you inject, um, women into the male environment, it, it has to be done correctly but the women can actually motivate the men to do a lot. However, it has to be done correctly because otherwise it, it just, the men start killing each other, literally. Uh, so the organization of male and female societies is very important to a properly functioning civilization. I, that's what the fascinating thing I, I took away from all this. And males absent the incentive to reproduce and impress a woman will eventually lose motivation. Uh, however, women by themselves are completely useless uh, and they'll die. Uh, however, they can inspire men to work for them. And if you organize it correctly for a family, and then that's how you carry on your your legacy. Um, but men and women separated, uh, the dynamics, I think, are very different. And I think in politics, when you're in a survival situation effectively uh injecting women into the the mix under stress especially uh and temptation by the authorities to defect and to rat out the organization i don't think women are strong enough to sustain that They're, they don't do well in isolation they don't do well uh being ostracized they're social creatures and this is why Time and time again, we we see examples of this. I, I mentioned Katie McHugh. They didn't I do well, and I, yeah. I mean, my Meinhof had a, a breakdown. I mean, it's exactly what, what happened. I mean, the solidarity of the core under under confinement uh, broke down along sex lines. I have a quote actually. Uh, this is uh, Gudrun to. to it's, uh, this is her talking to Potter. It says, uh, uh, Ulrike's two outbursts of laughter during work. Uh, necrophiliac, hysterical, really absolutely hideous and unequivocal directed against me. Although I keep saying, and I say again, not really against me, but against you. But there we are. Yes, her laughter really was against me too, because it was against the revolution. You know, so... It it was a, I mean they were, I mean they were fucked anyways at that point, but yeah, uh, definitely if you're doing something illegal, uh, uh, you gotta probably take some notes uh, on that subject. Not that you should be, not that our fine listeners would ever be doing anything illegal. Yeah, but, not that we would you know, encourage anyone. Honestly, if you're, even if you're doing something that's legal under American law, no, no, no. But even if you're doing something that's nominally legal under American law, uh, for example, it is nominally legal for white people to organize, but it is in fact illegal. Uh, yeah, definitely give some thought to the whole uh, 
women in your organization situation. Um, I personally uh, would say that uh, you shouldn't do that. I mean, the, you, the workaround you know, that I've heard of is that, you know, mileage a, may a, man, vary, man, but... a man can be married to a woman and she can attend. Uh, and this is, by the way, how old world uh, fraternal lodges worked. I, I've observed this uh, through people I know and in, in, in my fa in my past uh, who are of an older generation. Um, if you are married to a woman, she can be, you know, brought to a dance on Fridays but she she would never be involved in the uh, executive directorate of your organization ever. Uh, you know she can be brought to social occasions and that's fine. And then she feels included and important. Uh, but you know her her job is keeping charge of the family and making sure that the kids are okay. And your job is bringing the bacon home. I mean, it's a pretty classic model. I mean, we're not like reinventing the wheel here. It's basically just a reiteration of what's worked for thousands of years. And if you start monkeying with it, you know, you get the disaster that the West has turned into. Yeah. Well, do you have any other points, Adam? I, I hope I, I clarified uh, for, I guess for you and for the listeners, uh, what I was, was getting at here. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I think they're they're a legit organization. I think I think you made the case that they're uh, they're not a front for some intelligence agency, which is rare, uh, frankly, and well, especially these days. But I think, including in history, I mean, I did I did make that point. I just it would be incorrect to call it a Stasi front. Yeah, maybe they got some funding, but I I don't think they. I mean, I think what your 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 best point was that the fact that they their actions and their their successful hits were against system targets, uh, I think demonstrates their credibility. I mean, it's sort of like Assange, uh, you know, versus uh, Glenn Greenwald or something like. I mean, I don't know, like. He's been uh, making some waves sort of recently, but it's always sort of within uh, lane bumpers, uh, of course. Uh, but I think that's, that's that's I think, coming across very clear, and I agree with that. Uh, I think it's a organization that certainly was uh, authentic. Yeah, armed resistance wasn't part of the plan. Once I had my dream But all of 